All right, let's get into the book of Acts. We are going to cover chapter 7 today. It is a very long chapter. Um, so just kind of by way of outline, I'll, uh, we'll get a little bit of a run into it, just topic-wise, what's going on with Stephen. There's a very long message that he is presenting, but there's a theme and a thrust to this message. So we'll process through the bulk of it uh, pretty quickly with not too many comments, but the real thrust of it comes towards the end of the chapter, and we'll spend more time there. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we love you tremendously. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the fellowship that I've had with you. Thank you for the fellowship that I've had with my brothers and sisters. Thank you for worship this morning, Lord, to be able to worship you in spirit and in truth and in power, to declare your glory, to praise you, to thank you, to remind ourselves about your majesty, your beauty, the work that you have done and that you are doing and that you will do. Our Father, we love you with all that we are. We look to you in faith and in hope and in wonder and awe. So as we open your word this morning, we're asking that you'd enable us to see your son. Let us see Jesus. Let us understand him. Let us know him. Let us fall in love with him all afresh this morning. And what your spirit speaks to us, Lord, what you speak to us individually and as a congregation, let us hear you. Let us trust you. Let us be empowered by you. And all that we do, let us bring you glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, context, we are dealing with Stephen in chapter 7. So we have been, been introduced to Stephen in chapter 6. There's an issue going on within the early church where the Hellenist widows are being ignored in contrast to the Hebrew widows. The congregation, all the body of Christ has been asked to go and to seek out amongst themselves seven men that are full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, and Stephen is one of these men. We're not told how old he is, but the assumption is if, if you're going to ask an individual to take care of a bunch of old ladies, you're going to want that individual and those individuals to have an old lady that they love, right? You're going to want an individual to have already experienced the life situation of what it's like to care for a widow, what it's like to, uh, for a widow to lose her husband, what it's like to watch a widow die and pass away. So more than likely, Stephen's probably a middle-aged guy, been faithful in the community. It says that he has a good reputation. So he's not flippant, he's not... Um, you know, he's one of these guys that's followed through on what he says that he's going to do. He's clearly somebody who has a heart that demonstrates love and encouragement. The gift of helps, the gift of administrations is going to be the character of this man. As he is filled with the Holy Spirit, he's filled with the Holy Spirit because he trusts in Jesus Christ as, a, as his Lord and Savior. We're told at the end of this that he is, as he is filled with faith, in the faith that is obedient to Jesus Christ, as he is filled with the Holy Spirit that he has received through faith in Jesus Christ, he is being enabled, empowered to be a witness. 
as he is witnessing the truth of who Jesus Christ is, the Holy Spirit is empowering him, it says, to do great wonders and signs amongst the people, not to elevate Stephen's name, but to elevate Jesus Christ and to give uh, weight to the words that he's preaching to the community. And then he's got this opposition. And again, as we're traveling through the book of Acts, this idea of the opposition against Christ and against those who look to Christ in faith is growing. And here at the end of this chapter, we're going to see the opposition grow to the point where they are throwing stones at Stephen's head. The end of chapter 6, as he has been arrested, he is being dragged into the Sanhedrin, the same council that Jesus stood before, the same council that the apostles have stood before earlier in the book of Acts. These are the same men that Stephen is now standing before, and they're bringing against him the same charges that they brought against Jesus. This man has spoken blasphemous, slanderous words against Moses, against God, against this holy place in reference to the temple and against the law. This is important because as we travel through chapter 7 and what Stephen is saying to these people in defense of himself is in regards to these accusations. And it says that these accusations, that they're false accusations. They weren't able to withstand the spirit that was within him. They were not able to stand against the wisdom that was pouring forth out of his mouth. So therefore, they secretly induced men to lie. They bring forth these false witnesses. Remember these false witnesses. They're going to show up again at the end of this chapter. And as he is standing before them, so this is a, a half-circle stadium, so to say, where it's a multi-tiered um, arena where he is now on trial. He is standing before 70 judges. He is standing before all of their associates. There's going to be people on the sides listening, and he is standing in their presence. And as he is standing in their presence, he is standing in the Lord. And it says that his face is as the face of an angel. And this is really important. As we travel through what he is saying, especially as we get to the end of this, we could see him with a really stern face and with anger. But you have to see the peace that he has, the calm that he has, the power that he has, the confidence that he has in who Jesus Christ is. He's not weak in his faith. He's not stumbling these things. He knows exactly who his Savior is. And as those are saying that you are preaching false things about our God, you are preaching false things about Moses, you are saying lies in regards to this temple, you are saying lies in regards to the law of God. These are the religious leaders these are the people that should know the very nature, heart, and character of God, and they don't. They've missed him. And God has placed Stephen in this position to share truth and to share love and to share where life comes from, and it's in Jesus and Jesus alone. And not only did he share it with them, God preserved this account because Stephen's message has been shared with Christian generation after Christian generation to warn all of us, and I, and I take this really personally, not to become a Pharisee. I, said, I was talking this morning as we are having a conversation. I'd be a really good Pharisee if it weren't for Jesus. I'm pretty good with information. I'm pretty good with knowledge. It'd be really easy for me to tell you what to do and not do it myself. But I have his spirit that's within me that's keeping me from that kind of heart and from pursuing that. But I look to him to transform me every single day because I don't just want to communicate truth. I want to live it. He is true, so I want 
to love him. I want to love his truth. I want him to work out his truth in my mind and in my heart and in my life. And Stephen has given us testimony of one. You know, we're not sure, you know, how many years has, you know, did he come to the Lord? Was he following Jesus before the day of Pentecost? Did he come to the Lord at the day of Pentecost? Is this, did he come to the Lord after? We don't know how long he has been in love with Jesus. But since that moment, he's been filled with faith. Spirit is empowering him. He's impacting his community for the name of Jesus Christ. And now he's being drugged before a council and here's the response. The high priest says to him, are these things so, what he's being accused of? And he said, brethren, you're my brothers and fathers. Think about this title. He's, he's addressing the fathers of the nation, the elders of the nation, those that are responsible for the spiritual care of the nation. Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory his outward glory, his Shekinah glory is the word in the Old Testament. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land I will show you. And he came out of the lands of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. Listen, this word for set, this is, a, uh, this is the word that's used for the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ, where he's saying that God didn't give him an inheritance in the land that he promised to him, not even enough to sit in a, in a seat of judgment, in a seat of authority in the land that was promised to him. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession, a permanent possession, and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham begot Isaac, this miraculous birth there, and circumcised him on the eighth day in obedience to the covenant. Isaiah begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. So as he is standing... In this judgment, he is being accused, right, of blasphemy against Moses, against God, against the temple, and against the law. So as he is in defense of himself and in defense of what he is proclaiming and preaching in Jesus Christ, he is going to exactly where all these men, where their faith would rest, what they're looking to. I believe in Abraham as our father. I believe that the God of glory, the very God of gods, the God who created the heavens and the earth, appeared to Abraham, called Abraham, brought him out, promised him this land, told him that his descendants would be for 400 years in bondage in Egypt. God fulfilled his promise in this child Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. There's this foundation here, and now as he moves in, this is where we really need to keep our attention on seeing Jesus in the text. 
Because as he starts discussing through the rest of this, he is, what he is saying in regards to the Old Testament, he is using that to line it up with the hearts of the men that he is speaking to. And in the Old Testament, they often missed God. They had his word, they had the oracles, but they missed God's heart. They missed obedience. They missed faith. And this is Stephen's argument to the people that are right before him. You've missed the very God of gods. You've missed the very things that he told us about, the very things that he promised. And you've missed them because of your heart condition. Not because you're not smart. Not because you don't know these things. Not because you haven't read them and studied them. You've missed them because you're living out your own agenda in your own ways, in your own community. It's all about you. You say that it's about God, but it's not. So this is this idea as he's flowing through here. So verse 9, so the patriarchs, they became envious and sold Joseph into Egypt. What did the religious leaders do to Jesus? People were following Jesus. They became envious of Jesus. It's the exact same heart that he's talking about. They sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We could sit for the rest of the morning in that sentence. God is with us. He is here to deliver us out of all of our troubles, out of all of our sins, out of all of our trials. He is the one who gives us favor. He gives us grace. He gives us wisdom in the presence of whoever we are dealing with in this world. Pharaoh made Joseph governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph made known to his, was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. So all of that account there in the, the account of Genesis that we just spent a year in. And now it's transitioning to the account of Exodus. But again, just keep as he's flowing through his defense. The envy that the patriarchs had against Joseph. That same heart issue, that same envy, that same jealousy is in regards to the current culture towards Jesus and the current culture towards those who believe in Jesus. Verse 17, but when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This another king, this next Pharaoh, he was a different character. He didn't know the history of Joseph. He didn't know Joseph's service. He didn't know Joseph's character. Another king with another character arose that did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with cunning, with intentional evil strategy with our people and oppressed our forefathers. I can't imagine this. Making them expose their babies so that they might not live, so that they might not be preserved alive. 
At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. This, this word well-pleasing, it means that he's city-born. Rather than being country-born, out, out in the country, he's city-born. He's eloquent. He's educated. Um, he's substantial. And, you know, and again, these are, these are worldly terms that we're looking at, but in the well-pleasing to God, it's not his physical nature and his physical character, but God knows the heart of Moses, which we know a lot of as we travel with him through the Old Testament. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, when his parents set him out to be exposed in obedience to the command of Pharaoh, it says Pharaoh's daughter took him away. Literally, it's she owned him. God moved upon this woman's heart to have mercy on this Hebrew child that her father is commanding to be exposed to the elements to die. And God moves on her to own this child, to own Moses as her own. And brought, her, her, brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in his words and deeds. The exact same description that we have about Jesus. He was mighty in his words and in, in his deeds. So in this already, Stephen is addressed, I believe in the God of glory, the same God that you believe in. I believe that God called Moses and preserved Moses just as you believe in. I am not coming against Moses. Verse 23. Now when Moses was 40 years old, it came and arose in his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. So this is where we have to lose the, who's the, um, the Ten Commandments guy? Charlton Heston, you know, where he doesn't know where he's from and it's all a mystery. Moses knew who he was as he was brought up in Pharaoh's house. He knew that he was a Hebrew. He knew that he was of the children of Israel. Verse 24, seeing them, seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. See Jesus in that. When we look at Jesus, we've suffered because of sin. He has defended us. He has avenged us that have been oppressed. He has struck down our enemy, death. Verse 25. He supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Again, sit in that in regards to Jesus' life. Sit in it in Stephen as he's talking to this men, these men. I would think that you would understand that God has used Jesus to deliver you from sin, to deliver you from death. But they didn't understand. You don't understand. Verse 26. And the next day, he appeared to two of them as they were fighting. And he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, literally thrust him away saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the, the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. That quote's going to come up here in just a second. Verse 30, and when 40 years had passed, Moses is now 80 years old. The Lord has been preparing this man as a vessel, as a servant, 
for the calling that he's going to place in his life. Eighty years he's been preparing Moses for this. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And imagine that encounter. Then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen, literally having seen, I saw the, the oppression of my people who were in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? is the one God sent to be ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out, and, he, and after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness 40 years, again, bearing testimony to the reality of his, of his faith in God in the Old Testament, his calling of Moses, what Moses did, um, again, he's bearing testimony to this, but the, the, the thrust of the argument is coming down. You, rulers, you have rejected the very one God sent to be your ruler, sent to be your Messiah, your Christ, your deliverer. You've rejected him. This, verse 37, is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Jesus is that prophet. Verse 38, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Remphan, which is Saturn, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. So again, the argument God sent Moses. They rejected Moses. God used Moses ultimately to deliver them out of their bondage and out of their oppression. He sent Moses to be a ruler. He sent Moses to hear the very words of God to give them to the people. The congregation, and this is the same word for church. It's the assembly, the congregation of the wilderness. They're there. They're, they're witnessing all of these events. These are the human beings 
who witnessed all the wonders of God. It's, it's told over and over again, just the power of God stretched out his hand, his power. He did these wonderful wonders and these miracles. Even to this, he parted the Red Sea so that the Jews crossed on dry ground. And as the Egyptians chased after him, the Red Sea came on top of the Egyptian army. They saw this. They go to the Mount of Mount Sinai 90 days after they leave Egypt and they heard the very voice of God speak to them his commands. Moses is back up on Mount Sinai conversing with the Lord. The Lord is giving to him the plans of the priesthood, the plans of the tabernacle. And this is all imagery about God dwelling in the midst of his people that he has called, that he has chosen to be a testimony to all the world. While Moses is up there, the people come to Aaron who has a crown on his head that says holiness to the Lord, holiness to Yahweh. And the people say, make us a God. And he does it. This is a notorious crime of the children of Israel in the book of Exodus. In this, we watch Moses intercede on behalf of his people. Again, giving us a picture of Jesus interceding on behalf of us and our own sin. God responds to that intercession in the process of this conversation Moses is asking God God I want to see you I want to see your glory after all that Moses has already had in his interaction with God God I want to see your glory and God says to him you can't see me in that shell and live but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand And as I go before you, I'll declare my name. And out of the heart of our God that created the heavens and the earth and us, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, patient, forgiving. At the same time, not clearing the guilty, talking about the the true, just wages of sin, which is death. And Moses responds to that, Lord, pardon our iniquity. Be, remain in our midst, go with us. What Stephen is relating to the people, he's relating to them the truth out of God's word. These are men, they, they have these passages memorized. They teach these passages. They attempt to live out these passages in truth in their life, even though they're not living them out according to the heart of God. They're living them out according to their culture, according to their own ways. And Moses is bringing this up. You are looking to your fathers in history as, the, as those that you're standing on the shoulders of in your argument against me. When the very fathers that you're using in your argument are the ones who were continually rebelling against God because they had a heart issue. Their hearts desired to go back. 
Their hearts were more comfortable in their slavery in Egypt than they were out in the wilderness trusting in God to lead their steps. Even though they could see this Shekinah glory of God, his presence over them descending in this cloud of fire, or a pillar of fire by night, illuminating the camp, this cloud of glory during the day, resting there in the tabernacle where God said that he would meet with his people. They could see it and they didn't have faith. That rebellious heart that is in all of us, this is what he, Stephen, is trying to bring attention to. You sit there and you're talking about that I'm bringing words against this temple and your fathers, they took up the temple, the tabernacle of another God, the God of Molech. The children of Israel sacrificed their own children to this idol. Wow. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness in contrast to this tabernacle of Molech that they end up taking up. As he, our God, appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob, a habitation. God said no to him, but Solomon built him a house, the temple. However, verse 48, the most high does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, quoting out of Isaiah, God says, heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Again, the the grandeur and the majesty of God. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? And again, the contrast here is what man's hands can and have made in contrast to what the hand of God has made. And God is saying, my hand is the one who, is, who has made the very heavens. And the heavens, again, it's this imagery of height. Even though God created man in his own image, God has always been high and exalted and holy and majestic. Heaven is my throne that I have prepared for myself. The earth that I have prepared for you, it is my footstool. Your hands cannot build a dwelling for me. My hands, have they not made all things? And now here's the thrust of the argument. And you have to remember his face is the face of an angel. Remember who Stephen has faith in, which is Jesus Christ. Remember the language of Paul as he's begging for the salvation of his brethren. Stephen is standing before his fathers in the community. And his desires that they would hear. So this isn't this finger in their chest. But these are the very words of God as Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom. These are the words of God pouring out of his mouth. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. 
the language shifts here. It's always been in this context of our fathers, okay? In relationship, we're brethren, our fathers. And now it's this you language and it's you all that he's talking to. You stubborn and uncovenantal in your heart and in your ears. Your heart has not been, uh, uh, heart has not been circumcised. The flesh has not been cut away from your heart. Your ears, you were not listening. You always resist, literally, it's an active opposition. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold, who announced the coming of the just one. Of, of whom you now have become the betrayers, the traitors and murderers. Who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Sit in this in... Your own relationship with Jesus. I have to sit in this in mine. We can sit in this as a congregation. We can sit in this as a community of the body of Christ. Even here in Atlanta, in the United States. Is the church stubborn to God? Is the church uncircumcised in heart and ears? Does the church actively resist, actively oppose the Holy Spirit? When I read the Old Testament, and I, I, I can still remember, especially the first few times of going through the Old Testament, God, why are the Jews so stupid? If I would have lived during that time, I would have had this down pat. The moment that I saw the Red Sea parted, my faith would have been so secure. I would have been on fire for the Lord, hands down. And as time goes on in my relationship with the Lord, all of a sudden I start looking in the mirror and, wow, Lord, there are so many ways that I have demonstrated to you in my faith, in your beautiful son, I have been stubborn. I have allowed my heart to be uncircumcised. I have stuffed my ears with my own opinions rather than your heart and your word. Just as the Jews did, I found myself doing, Lord. You ever wonder when you sit in the Old Testament, if you were, uh, if you were alive during the time of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is saying that the Babylonians are going to come down. God is going to use them to destroy this nation because of your rebellion against God. Very few of the Jews responded in faith to the words of God that came out of Jeremiah's mouth. You ever were, have you ever wondered about your own soul, where you would have lined up in that culture? Where would you have lined up with Jesus? As Jesus was going for community to community, teaching, performing all these signs and wonders. What if you were born in his village at the same time? 
And now he comes back as an adult. Would you have been one of the ones that was trying to throw him off the cliff? Or would you have been like Mary, sitting at his feet? I don't know. I've, I mean, again, it's, it's kind of, it's moot. We can't answer that because it's all philosophical. But it's one of those questions I ask of myself just for the Lord to examine my heart today. Lord, I don't want to have a heart of rebellion against you. I don't want to be stubborn to your Holy Spirit. Whatever your spirit is telling me to let go of, Lord, I'll let go. Wherever you lead me, I'll go, Lord. Whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to give, wherever you want me to serve, whatever rut of mind you want me to let go of, whatever ways you want to shape this life, this heart, this mind, let your spirit lead me. Do you agree with that prayer? It's easy to agree, but it's a lot different to submit to the process daily. Anybody know what it's like to kick against the processes of God in your life? It's uncomfortable. It's hard. Yet, he always turns us back to Jesus. And look at what Stephen does at the end of this. He defends himself according to the false accusations that have been brought against them. He has, the Holy Spirit through Stephen has exposed their hearts to them. In verse 54, it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And this earlier, this, uh, this when uh, Peter was standing before bearing the same testimony, they were cut to the heart. This is the sawn through. The contrast in, in the day of Pentecost when it says that the listeners were cut to the heart, it was their hearts were pierced with the word of God. Here it's their hearts with the truth of God. Their hearts have been sawn asunder. It's left this mess where it says that they're gnashing at him with their teeth. They are in pain emotionally, mentally. They are angry. Who are you? They're wagging their finger. You're, you know, again, think of who's responding. This is, as you go into a courtroom today, the court, the judge that is sitting on the bench isn't looking to be educated by you. They're not looking to be educated by the defender and the prosecutor. The judge is there to determine truth. So in this arena, he has just judged these people. He has just exposed their hearts and their response is this gnashing of teeth, this grinding of teeth. Who are you? But Stephen, look at the composure of Stephen in Jesus. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven. And he saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Here we have Jesus, the Christ, alongside of God, Father and Son, Spirit, and this is his testimony. Look, as they're gnashing with their teeth and in anger, as their hearts have been sawn through, Stephen's testimony, look, people, look. I see the heavens opened. Heaven is open. And the Son of Man, he's standing at the right hand of God. 
Those of you who are familiar, every other time this, this imagery is used, Jesus seen, he's seen as seated at the right hand of God. This is the only time it's mentioned that he's standing, and it seems to be that Jesus is standing because there he is getting ready to receive Stephen into his presence. And when they heard this, they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears. Literally, they're, they're holding their ears closed, and they rushed at him. They ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Look at this. Look at the, I mean, try and picture this moment. They're in a legal courtroom. They're responding to this. He just, he declares that he has seen Jesus at the right hand of God. This is blasphemy to them. This is the very words that came out of Jesus' mouth when the high priest rent his garment. And that's the excuse that they used to crucify Jesus. They drag him out, angry, a mass, a mob. They put him into this position. People take off their clothes, their outer garments. It says the witnesses, remember false witnesses. They lay down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen. Picture that, taking a stone. And again, this is, this is the legal punishment for blasphemy in this community as God ordained. It's commanded back in Leviticus 24. And they're throwing stones as he's calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. Receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And just look at this scene in regards to his words, drawing our attention that we need to look. We need to make sure that we see that heaven is opened and that the doors have been uh, to heaven have been opened through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The access that we have to the heavens of heavens, the access that we have to God who is seated on his throne in the heavens is through the name, the nature, the character, and the work of Jesus Christ who is the very son of God. He is the very God of gods here called the son of man pointing this back to Daniel 7 in that testimony of a prophet standing there God giving him this vision a man who has pleased the Lord a man who has a man who Jesus is standing before and is saying that's one of mine right now and here he's coming into my presence. Stephen's prayer in the midst of the rejection of his Lord, Stephen's prayer in the, in the midst as he is being rejected by his community, Stephen's prayer as he is being brutally killed, in the name of God, his prayer is, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And Lord, 
This is the heart of Christ. This is the heart of Christ on the cross as he is praying for those who were crucifying him. That God would forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. Here Stephen's prayer is, Lord, do not fix this sin upon them. And remember who he's praying for. Who's standing there? Saul. As we travel through the rest of the book of Acts, when, especially once we get into chapter 9, we get this, radi- this testimony of the radical transformation of this man, Saul. This event in Saul's life is something that he carried with him for the rest of his life. This event, his persecution of the church, the death of Stephen, casting the vote for this event, participating in this event, this is something that continued to ring out in his mind his entire life. It's a sin of Saul's that was forgiven by Jesus. The doors of heaven were opened for Saul. As Amber read through Psalm 51 this morning, the doors of heaven were opened for David. The doors of heaven are open for every single human being who is willing to submit themselves to the name, the name whereby we must be saved, the name, the beautiful, wonderful, powerful name of Jesus. And we can have confidence in the midst of whatever opposition is coming our way, whether it's from man or whether it's from devil. That if death is coming our way, that when we, when we die, we sleep. We're asleep. This, this whole idea, this, you know, he's got this face of an angel, right? He's filled with the spirit. And we have to see the tenderness. We have to see the power. We have to see the authority. And hear the words that are pouring out of Stephen's mouth, bearing testimony to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. But here, as he's crossing over that threshold from life in this physical body to death, where his spirit is now separated from his body, it's defined as rest. It is something that is peaceful. It is something that is hopeful in the life of everybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Because as Stephen is closing his eyes in this world, in this body, He's already prayed and he already knows who his confidence is in. Jesus, receive my spirit. I know when I close my eyes, my spirit is going to be received into your presence. There's a peace there. There's a rest there. And we all trust in the promise. There's coming a day in the future when that body, which is buried in the ground, it is going to be resurrected and reunited with the spirit. And it's going to be reformed in a body that's going to abide in the very presence of the God of glory for all eternity. And this is the heart though here in this passage. It's, it's always we need to sit in that, allow the Holy Spirit to examine us. Am I in active resistance of pushing away the Holy Spirit, pushing away Jesus' will and desire for my life, or is it something that I'm kneeling to him in submission? Lord, Here I am. 
Whatever needs to occur in this heart, in this mind, in this mouth, in this life, here I am. Do your work, Lord. I see my sin. Lord, my sin is it's always before me. Against you and you alone, I have sinned. But if you wash me, if you wash me, the sacrifice in the blood of your son who gave himself over for me for the remission of my sins, I will be clean. Though I am filthy and dark and dirty, through faith in Jesus Christ, you make me as white as snow. I have put off the old man. And I have been clothed in your righteousness. My old man is dead and buried with Christ and his crucifixion and his sacrifice. The man that I am today is alive forever in the power of Jesus Christ's resurrection. You are the very God of gods, the God of gods, who the heavens cannot contain through faith in Jesus Christ, you have chosen to make me, us, your dwelling place, your pruning, your sanctifying, your setting us apart, your leading us and directing us according to your plans and your will, Lord. And we want to submit to that process because we want nothing more than to love you with all that we are, We want to love each other just as you have loved us, Lord. And we're asking that you'd use our lives individually and that you'd use our lives corporately, Lord, to bring you glory. That each one of us remember that heaven is open to all. And Lord, we're begging for those hearts that are hard, those hearts that are stubborn, those hearts that are unyielding, uncircumcised, those ears that are stuffed, Lord, we're praying that you would break through. Whether those hearts are in this room or there are lives that we interact with out in this world, Lord, we're praying for them, that you'd enable them to repent, to turn, to turn into you just as Moses turned in and to live their life in the holiness that you provide. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.